Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line is my co-host. She's drinking a wine cooler in the kiddie pool. It's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> oh my God. If I should be so lucky to be like <laughs> hanging with Alligator Loki. Actually, we are not alone in... I am also one of your hosts, Daniel Henley, and joining us on the other line, now that she's back from her bowling alley kingdom, is <laughs> Lily Gorin, who is a dear friend of ours and an MCU enthusiast, a wonderful political theorist and political scientist. She is actually a professor of political science and for the next, I think, 10 days, still chair of the political science department <laughs> at Carroll University. Lily Gorin, welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV Thanks. podcast. Thanks for having me on today. I'm delighted to be here. We're so thrilled you accept our invitation to come on this little podcast of ours. Yeah, we love it. We love it. Why would I like- not? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should not. I can think, I can think of lots of reasons, so we can we can keep moving. <laughs> oh my god! So this uh, today we are talking about Loki season one episode five, Journey into Mystery. It is directed like all of these episodes by Kate Herron, um, and it's written by Michael Waldron, and then Bisha K. Ali and Thomas Kaufman also have story credit. Uh, on it. John, do you want to give us the summary of this episode? Another short and sweet summary. Loki tries to escape the void, a desolate purgatory where he meets variant versions of himself. Honestly, that's a better summary than some of these other ones have been. It's very true. It's very true. And so I think we want to start, and Lily will turn to you first, of course, as the guest is. One of the themes that Danielle and I have been engaging over the last several episodes, or maybe since the beginning of the season of Loki, is the question that the show itself is asking about what are the fundamental things that make a Loki a Loki across all of the multiple variants of Loki? So how do you see this particular episode of Loki raising or engaging that question? Well, you have so many Lokis in this episode, <laughs> in so many different forms. Um, so it's it's not just the, the horns on the top of the head um, or the color green. It seems to be that what makes a Loki a Loki is a bit of mischief, um, but also the capacity to continue and persevere, um, which seems to be yeah. also a, a big theme, um, particularly in this episode with regard to who the Lokis are, the many Lokis, um, and what they say about themselves uh, in terms of sort of what makes them a Loki. Um, and that there's something between also uh, Tom Hiddleston's Loki and Sylvie uh, that is also sort of a unifying capacity or power um, yeah. that I think is interesting and he recognizes that a bit as does she. Yeah. I, I like, I like thinking about that sort of that unifying power. And I, I almost wonder if it's kind of like a level up that happens, like when they're, when they're connected, there's like an uptick in intensity um, because of the connection, which I think you're absolutely right that he certainly recognizes. And I think has recognized for a couple of episodes now. And I think she was a bit slower to come around to it. And so the they explicitly talk about the very the various variant Loki's talk about what 
makes a Loki and its survival, right? Seems to be the common yeah. theme as they are kind of explaining the long-term inhabitants of the void have been, are explaining to 2012 Loki what is happening, which is an interesting kind of narrative or structural thing that the show is doing when arguably the variant who has most expressed this kind of survival in the face of literally thousands of apocalypses is Sylvie, who is the who is a woman and who is not present at that conversation. So even as they are talking about survival or kind of resilience or something like that, um, being the key characteristic, the one who most embodies that, but embodies it in a different way, isn't actually there. Like herself fighting a version of that battle, like in the parallel scene, right? Like trying to figure out how to get to Tom Hiddleston's Loki, trying to figure out like what is happening, where he's gone, sort of extorting Renslayer a little bit, like that they're, we're sort of seeing that survival mode enacted in, in a, in a way in Sylvie that perhaps we don't, we don't see as much prior to meeting all of the different Lokis together. She also articulates that in previous episodes, right? She articulates this perpetual drive to survive in in a number of other places where you know she's explaining who she is in in sort of the variance context so the fact that she's absent i think is interesting when they discuss like what makes a loki a loki but she's already told us a lot about her qualities as a loki as in maybe the kind of clearest eyed person about that actually yeah. isn't there to explain it to the men who are right. I mean, we don't, we don't know how to gender the alligator. I don't want to assume. That, so, <laughs> well, I, this is, it's an interesting segue because the point I was going to make was one of my favorite parts of this episode is when classic Loki is like talking about alligator Loki is like, he's sensitive. We all are right. Which is another thing that, all the Lokis are, at least is proclaimed as such, and that the alligator is sensitive. And then we sort of see the alligator being sensitive, and but like the response is just violence. Alligator Loki is really interesting, who communicates without, you know, using words. <laughs> Listen, I just like, give me that rocks wine drip. Like, <laughs> like I'll take it. <laughs> And I mean, indeed, like all of the characters are quite sensitive in this episode, whether it's about their exploits before being pruned into the void, whether it's about the relationship between the different variant Lokis, whether it's about when candidate, president, whatever Loki comes to try to take over the bowling alley kingdom um, in all these different ways in a way that is played both for laughs, but is also seemingly being constructed as adding some of the emotional depth to the character that like admittedly I have at some points found lacking in this season of TV with regards to 2012 Loki. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you that it's a very interesting way that they're threaded together um, as kind of a, you know, kind of a ragtag group. Um, but they know, they know how to survive and and they see that in each other because it's also again you know sort of a theme of being a Loki, um, but they are I think in this episode you're right in in when we see them interacting with each other and how they how they explain each other 
to others yeah. <laughs> is is also where we see some some of that sensitivity um and and to some degree either friendship or familial relation and and what to categorize that lily is i think a really intriguing question because the issue of what is binding these variants together, is it more than survival? If it is just survival, how individualistic versus collective do we understand this, to borrow Daniel's term, assemblage of Lokis together (laughs) um, that is being constructed? Kind of how the relationality and what like that grouping of Lokis means to one another beyond just a kind of purely individualistic drive for survival is something that is a, I mean, it's a, it's a political theory way of asking what's happening with this group of actually not that atomistic individuals who could have been animistic. Individuals. Oh yeah. Yeah. That all gets, I would say challenged and complicated with the invasion of all of the other Lokis and the sort of betrayal of boastful Loki him being like, sorry, like this is my kingdom now. And then president Loki's like, yeah, okay, actually, of course it's not. So, so there's the, the, we'll call it, let's call it a familial assemblage between the, the Lokis um, in the bowling alley. And then the, the sort of, what the what questions the invasion of all of the other Lokis then raises. What is it about the, that particular conglomeration of Lokis that brings them together and for to some extent keeps them together that does not extend to all of those other variants? Because we learn that it's not just these variants we've been hanging out with. It's a lot of other ones Many more Tom Hiddlestons. <laughs> <laughs> no one's complaining about that, even the more skeptical among us. No, and, and I, I agree with you that there is a distinction. And if we sort of peel apart like the group of the, the assemblage um, who is, is most familial, we have sort of old Loki, um, Kid Loki, Alligator Loki, Tom Hiddleston Loki, yeah, Sylvie, right? And as the episode goes on, we're left with fewer and fewer Lokis. Yeah, well, and this is something that, this is like another thing that I think is really interesting is at the end of the episode, another place where I think we start to learn or where we learn more about the answer to the question, what makes a Loki a Loki is in the ways each of the Lokis responds to the one, the plan that like Tom Hiddleston Loki has like Sylvie's like, that's your plan. Like, come on. And the other guys are like, yeah, we didn't like love it, but there wasn't that uproar. There wasn't that uproar before. So it's that, but then it's also, I think there's something really telling in the way that classic Loki's like, good luck, like, keep it real, hope you survive, but then comes back. I think that coming back is, to me, that's what, that's the thing that got him pruned in the first place, right? That's the, that, like, coming out of hiding, needing, needing connection, wanting, wanting to find Thor, wanting to find his family, and sort of the, like, the the heel turn a little bit here, like coming back to Loki and Sylvie and and sacrificing himself. Absolutely. And laughing in the face of death in the form of the smoke monster as he does it, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
and 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 young Loki gives Loki and Sylvie his sword, right? His knife, his 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 form of protection. Yeah. Um, so we see we see sort of two kinds of sacrificing potentials. Um, leaving us with alligator Loki and alligator Loki obviously has alligator skin. So is more protected (laughs) in and of his or herself. Again, we don't want to ascribe gender to alligator Loki. Um, But we, you know, and so then we're essentially left from our family assemblage with Sylvie and Loki. Yeah. Who start out separate, right? So Tom Hiddleston Loki runs to distract um, Eliath and then comes back to literally join forces, join powers, and join hands with Sylvie. Yeah. Well, and also like another time where Tom Hiddleston Loki's plan is like less than great. <laughs> like, here's my fire sword. Like, come look at me. <laughs> And that doesn't work. And like, luckily, you know, classic Loki rolls in and is like, here is my, my, like, the great imagery that I'm creating as opposed to like your dingy fire sword that like you got at the five and dime. (laughs) Am I right that this is projection that old Loki is constructing as a version of Asgard? Because I don't have the context for it, but okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It it is Asgard. So it's a... That's interesting vis-a-vis the temporality of it, right? So he left or was exiled from Asgard. I forget the exact explanation. And then reconstructs it as part of this self-sacrifice that you're talking about, Lily. But they're doing so in purgatory at the end of time. Like, it's it's really complicated to track that. And track the, and track the emotions of that. Well, and, and also, and John, this goes back to a point that you made a couple of minutes ago, The that part of what perhaps what makes a Loki a Loki is like a willingness to confront and laugh in the face of death. But like in the same way that we thought pruning was death, like is being gobbled up by like Elias the smoke monster, like major loss vibes there. Is that death? Uh, unclear, right? So I think that willingness to confront the unknown and and to just like head on there's a hubris in that but there's also a kind of like well i think like a kind of bravery there too if we're if we're being generous i think we're being generous on this episode okay (laughs) (laughs) as i've told danielle i've just been nothing but generous this entire season of the podcast (laughs) john watching and talking about this is is already generous. So (laughs) (laughs) I want to say one more thing about, um, about this question of what makes a Loki a Loki. I want to go back to alligator Loki just for a moment, because one of my favorite scenes in this episode is when Mobius is contemplating like what makes a Loki a Loki and whether alligator Loki is a Loki and like, how do we know? And like, is he lying? Well, if he's lying, then like, doesn't that just make him more a Loki anyway? And I just like, I don't know why the like armchair philosopher in me just loves Mobius parsing through all of that, like about alligator Loki like, I just love it so much. So I just wanted to put that out there for us to just gush a little bit about. <laughs> but I think that's also one of the, one of the aspects of Mobius's um, approach is, you know, he sort of takes a lot of really twisty theories 
and is like, that's fine, you know, whatever. And then every so often he'll come up with these like, is that really how it works? On that point, rather, is Mobius has been on to there being something up with the TVA for a lot longer than he's acted on that, right? So, like, like the fact that Loki is able to convince him very quickly that, like, this is all a ruse, that he's a variant, I think goes back to the fact that Mobius is, like, suspicious and always sort of, like, trying to think a little bit in circles, which sometimes gets him in trouble, sometimes brings Loki to, like, hunt another Loki, which is kind of a wild scheme, and sometimes, like, gets him to the the truth of the matter, which is that, yeah, you are a variant. You did probably have a jet ski at some point. <laughs> <laughs> like, give Mobius his jet ski. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I hope that we get that in season two. That would be nice. <laughs> Danielle knows that my, that I think that, the character of Mobius has worked effectively as a plot device and as a developed character with a wide range of emotions, I have found actually the show to be somewhat lacking. Like I have not been able to connect to the Mobius Tom Hiddleston, Loki friendship, even in the way I did when I kind of watched the show in a little bit more cursory way last summer. Yeah. And, and I, and I sort of understand that. I, I do also think that Mobius is a bit of a Greek chorus. So um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm on a podcast with an expert on Greek courses. So, yeah, I'm not going to go any further than that. No, I love it so much. I just, I'm basically this entire season of of the the pod has been me just smuggling in different like references to Euripides. Um, it's like really true. Listen, the, like the end of time destruction, like, uh, I, I grew up in a thousand, the end of a thousand worlds. It's like, it, there's the very Trojan women of it all, but no, I, the provocation that Mobius, Mobius as, as a Greek chorus, like both as someone who is like serving as a sort of conversation partner, call and response, like in the, in the commos of it all. But I think also in terms of someone who can draw a, a little bit longer, like line of of thinking of context, like broaden out our perspective a little bit, which is one of the functions that I think is so important for the chorus. Like, I think that that I really like that reading. I'll probably steal it. <laughs> Go for it. No. <laughs> Danielle is herself generous. She will definitely like put a footnote in to thank Lily J. Gorin for that one. John has <laughs> tried to like get me to take a footnote that I have in a lot of things that I write to an article that he wrote that was very like for, very formative for my own thinking. He's like, you don't need to cite me, like to take it out. I'm like, but it's important to me that you're in there. <laughs> And it's better to footnote people and give them the credit than, you know, steal the stuff and not give them credit. 100%. It's more that Daniela has, like, other better and more important stuff in the same footnote, and I'm like, you just need that. Um. Yours is the most important. Thank you. Everybody everybody who's listening to this pod should read John's article on Simone de Beauvoir and Sarah Ackman. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, maybe we should jump to a series of questions that are raised in some ways by the presence of Elias and the explanation that is semi-given by the Loki variants and particularly by Renslayer as to kind of what the purpose of the void is. 
And I think it's a question that is, I believe, for either of you, right? And I don't have an answer to it, which is why I am took the lead to ask it, is <laughs> what exactly is Eliath protecting either on kind of a... I, I, hes- I hesitate to say literal storytelling level because what is a literal storytelling level when we're talking about literally the end of time, but <laughs> on the kind of story level or what does it mean more broadly to have this like beastly creature imported from the lost universe, as Danielle pointed out, to protect the end of time as that end of time is still being written? Yeah, I, I mean, I I find... Um, some of the discussion of what is the end of time and also that there seems to be something beyond it, right? Yeah. That, that I, you know, it's like, oh, the, the void is actually, the end of, oh, no, 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 it's not. We have that confirmed in two places, right? In this episode, we have it in the void, but we also have it back at the TVA yes. where yeah. we do have this sort of framing of there's something beyond, um, and, and I, I don't know if it's the person behind the curtain, um, or <laughs> if it's, you know, if it's something else, um, but that we have this discussion of the fact that there is something beyond the end of time. That idea of the end of time still being written is really fascinating to me as someone who really struggles to, break out of thinking like in a linear fashion. Like that is, I like think I love time travel stories. I think in part because I, I think incredibly linearly about time. Um, so that idea that like the end of time is still being written, but we can speak about it and think about it and conceptualize it feels like disjointed to me a little bit. I think also like, the way that Renslayer just like offers this as like, oh, of course this is happening. And she's like, we don't actually like destroy branches. We just move them somewhere. But the effect of that is not necessarily, we're not necessarily seeing a timeline form in the void. We just get all these material objects that sort of like are displaced. And so like the, the relationship between materiality and temporality to me is raised by the void and, and like comes back into play with regard to Elias. I, I I agree with you that the idea of having these variants that are like stored or taken out of the main mm-hmm. timeline and they're sort of chucked in a storage facility, um, but they continue to exist. Yeah. Um, so that they're it's not dead, right? They're yeah. They, they are continuing on. So even in the variant capacity, there is a sort of end of time that continues to be written, um, and that also seemed to be what classic Loki was sort of saying about his own existence is he went away and then he got lonely. Yeah. (laughs) Lonely classic Loki is like maybe the saddest moment of this, of this episode. That one really tugged at my heartstrings, (laughs) but like, and, and that is sort of, corrected for in the void, right? Like in the void, he's not lonely. He has all these other Lokis. So like the thing that he was looking for, that he wasn't, that he didn't have access to, or he wasn't allowed to have access to on the the main timeline, like the sacred timeline, which we can also talk about like 
sacredness here, right? The the thing he didn't have access to on the sacred timeline, he gets pruned, and like that's the thing that he that he gets in a different form in the void. So again, the sort of like time space stuff of it all like feels really smashed together and raises interesting questions, but I'm not sure it answers any of them. John thoughts over there. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just kind of trying to digest what you all have, have been thinking about. And, and of course I jumped to political theory places about this, right? There's, I think even a conversation we might've had previously getting all about Agamben and like people now in the void are maybe the homo soccer or I think kind of perhaps more generatively than that queer theories of time and temporality um, and kind of what does it mean to to exist to exist in a future that is yet to be written that may or may not be able to kind of break out in some sort of revolutionary or utopic way from the present and then how do multiple temporalities exist to drive that sort of movement? Um, you know, like uh, thinking of Jose Esteban Munoz among all others here for sure. And the fact that this is the end of time, but is still something that is being made is I think what speaks to me most about that because it does leave open that room for invention or for new collectivities to form, even in this purgatory stasis that these that these characters or these figures or these beings are forcefully and violently placed into well yeah and i think like i love that idea of like that this is a space where thinking about that this is a space where new collectivities can form again smuggling in my own research questions <laughs> to to our podcast but like the that if we just read this episode like in terms of the linear development of the plot i think we kind of lose the collectives that that emerge that emerge from one another that go against each other like the the loki variants fighting each other is like such a side note in this episode but feels like such an important place where we where we do start to understand more about these characters these collectives and also like what is possible at the end of the world or at the end of time you know or near the end of time that's and and the loki's fighting also comes i would I think around the middle of the episode, you know, gets yes. me into weird Straussian numerology stuff. Um, <laughs> we, we, we encourage you, welcome that if you'd we like to it. pursue that. <laughs> so why is that the center of the episode? Um, and, and, you know, again, we sort of have this creation or recreation of who, who are the realer Lokis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the or the more valuable Lokis and the more creative Lokis that come out of that, because the rest of them sort of you know fight each other, and it's you know it's kind of boring. And yeah, and like they they sort of like walk out through a portal that classic Loki makes, which is also just like a thing that happens in this episode. Like our Loki needed you know needed the space stone to make portals, but classic Loki can just like conjure them up. But I think your your point about I love the Straussian part of this, but the <laughs> the point about um, like Loki, be, which Loki is more valid or valuable or legitimate, right? Like part of part of the way we answer that question is like for us as the audience, like the audience as, ascribes 
meaning to the Loki that we're following, but it doesn't mean that the, the, the other Lokis might not, might not be worth following. It's just not the story that we're, that we're a part of in this moment. Right. So thinking a little bit about that relationship too. Yeah. We're not invested in the whole other group of Logies who show up at the top of the, the in inlet into this underground bowling alley, um, (laughs) lair, (laughs) not James Bond lairs. Um, but, but at the same time, I think you're right, Danielle, in terms of we have been made to feel a connection with, a particular group of Lokis um, because we know a little bit more about their stories. We've seen them sort of interacting. So we're more sympathetic to them than this other group that just turns up and we're like, who are you? Um, yeah. And, and we're not given a lot about them and then they just start fighting. So we're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is a matter of to perhaps push this point a little bit further. What is the author disclosing and not disclosing to us? Or what is the creator mm-hmm. of the narrative or the story or the, you know, political accounts revealing to the audience and what is being concealed or communicated in other modes or something like that. Right. Where, what, 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 yeah. what would the story be that, disclosed boastful Loki and boastful Loki's existence and past being. Yeah. Or president Loki, right? Like what's the story? I think like when the trailer for Loki dropped, a lot of people thought that we were going to get a lot of president Loki, like in this show, that that was actually going to be like a much more prominent piece of it. And then it ends up sort of being this like aside in this in this scene right he's just like the ringleader of all of the other seemingly awful lokis um we seem to have like fallen into the like not so terrible like set of lokis um but they're all like on this this range of of of, like chaoticness um i've got thoughts about this particular assemblage coming in glass don't worry amazing amazing (laughs) um I think the other thing that to me is is deeply connected to these questions of temporality and to these to the the question that we're sort of raising here about audience and perspective and author disclosure is this this sort of piece of this thread about destroying the TVA right and about like that that is the the thing that maybe Sylvie is after and we get the the utterance that like she doesn't she doesn't just want to destroy it she needs to right we get that which is which seems to be important so what are what are your thoughts on this sort of like TVA destruction thread we've got going on here well, I mean, I think that when you start talking about destroying an entity like the TVA, right, are you destroying time? Um, and, and I mean, because we've come to be extremely skeptical about the TVA and who's in charge of it and, and what its real role is with the, the so-called protection of the sacred timeline. Um, and you've got, you know, you've got some interesting characters like Miss Minutes, who we're not really sure about. Um, and we've already seen that, you know, the, the three individuals or three entities that are supposedly in charge are completely vacuous. Um, so mindless androids, mindless androids. <laughs> and, and so what, what Sylvie needs to destroy it because she was 
jailed by it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that need for her grows out of the trauma. It's the entity like created for her. And the way that that trauma stands in for all of the violence against all of the people, children included, right. Who have been forcibly detained, stolen and turned into forced incarcerated laborers in the TVA. And so to me, like Sylvie's kind of insistence or desire or need to get rid of the TVA, it's like, that's the revolutionary leap of the character of Sylvie or the like leap into revolutionary history, including that what happens after one destroys the TVA is also unknown. Like the end of time or what's beyond it is unknown. So too is what would happen if Sylvie was successful in destroying the TVA. And that to me is in the, you know, the kind of thinking about what does a revolutionary leap into history mean in a political or historical sense? Like that's a, that's a question, right? To ask and whether one needs to have an answer to that question before one takes the leap is, is a debate of political ethics or political morality or whatever. Mobius, who's going back to the TVA to take on the role yeah. of destroying it. So that who is involved in destroying it? Like, of course, it's Sylvie's idea. It's Sylvie's plan. It's Sylvie's desire or need that's going to happen. And yet she's going to the end of time. Mobius is going to the TVA. Presumably those two things are connected, but you know, well, well, no, I love that. And I think the other thing just important to think about in terms of Mobius, right? Like he's, he's done this turn, right? Like, so like for him, he has gained some understanding of like who he either actually is or once was. And there is something about that that is deeply troubling to his, with regard to his relationship to the TVA. And it's part of what like propels him back to the TVA to like, he's, I think like taking on some of that trauma that, that Sylvie herself is like has experienced. Right. And I think that that in part explains why Mobius and not Sylvie, like I don't see them as, to go back to the term we were using earlier, like this, I think Mobius and Sylvia are also an assemblage, right? They're like a trauma, a trauma formed assemblage. Yeah. And, and certainly Mobius has the capacity because he has his own trauma, but he's not as aware of it as Sylvia is, but he's becoming more and more aware of how he was trapped. Right. Um, Yeah. And, and sort of exploited. So he's, he has, as you say, Danielle, there's sort of um, trauma that they are both have both experienced that is bringing them together. I would also just drop in here. I know we talk about political theory a little bit later, but um, in, in some of the, about it always uh, <laughs> in, in some of the way that John, you're describing um, Sylvie as this kind of revolutionary, she's taking on a kind of Afro pessimism too. Um, and, um, having, I, I was just recently reading, um, Kenan Ferguson's edited book, The Big yeah. No. And, and part of what I think a lot of this sort of, um, understanding of the theory here is, is and dealing with sort of what the end of time is and how it can continue to be written is very much in context of sort of understandings of Afro-pessimism and how you exist in a a timeline um, that refuses to accept you. 
And what would it mean to bring an end to that world or to that timeline? And what would be opened if that were that ending were to be brought about? Yeah. Right. Especially when it's an anti-black world or an anti-black timeline or an anti-black notion of the human and these sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like the way that that gets translated into this show, right. Is like a world that is premised on your non-existence. Right. Which I think is like, that's the translation of, of the sort of starting point of Afro-pessimism yeah. into, into like Loki and temporality. I'll go there. <laughs> we love it. Listen, uh, we love, as you have seen, just trying to get as much political theory into these episodes without telling ourselves that it's political theory. <laughs> oh. I, I we should that- move to the segments. Yeah. So our first segment, of course, is Marvel Splaining. And Lily, you can join on the splainer or splainy side, whatever you prefer, and, and feels like a good a good vibe for this. So I'll start with a, a basic plot question, I think. How does Mobius find Sylvie? And like are we just supposed to like accept that a logic of a television show this is had that they just, you know, Mobius just showed up? I think, yes. I feel like the, like, one step beyond just accepting is, like, when you are pruned from a place, you, like, mostly go, the the line is, is, like, kind of straight. So you, like, end up in the same general area. That doesn't answer the car question. And I also have that question, like, how did he get this car? But I'm happy he got it. <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and it is delightful and possibly a reference maybe to his days at Pixar as Lightning McQueen. Yeah. Um, but who knows? Uh, and it does have a wobbly pizza piece on the top, which is just also fabulous. We'll um, take it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it just feels like, of course, he's going to see her and pick her up in the car. Yeah, of course he knew where she was. I mean, like, I- I'm... As as is well established on this podcast, more than happy to just be like, okay, this is what the TV is telling me to like understand, and so I'll just accept it. Um, but I like I don't actually think those questions are answered anywhere, <laughs> and they may not need to be. Uh, yeah. So let, maybe let's move on to a little bit more uh, serious in terms of the universe of the show questions. Yeah, so I. I'm not quite sure I understood what was happening third of the way through the episode. Sylvia has arrived in the, in the void. And there's like this moment where she opens up this like green shimmer of her through her enchantment or creates this like little vortex or portal or something. There's a butterfly that's like illuminated into a rainbow. What is, what is happening there? Yeah. So the thing that I, so this is when Sylvie just gets to the void and Eliath is chasing her. Yes. And so the way that she refers to this a little bit later on is she says to to Loki and, and Mobius that um, she, like, connected with Eliath and, like, is trying to, like, basically see if she can enchant him. And so I think what we're seeing is, like, that moment of connection. The flashes are, like, that's what... In the same way that when she was uh, taking over, I believe, Agent B-15. She enchants both of them at various points, right? Right. When we we see her... That's right. When we see her enchanting these these other, like, 
these other people, she's trying to do the same version of that to Elias so that her like power to do that isn't confined only to humans, I guess. And I, I, I mean, I would agree with that, that this, because it's the power to enchant that she is also depending on towards the end of the episode. And yeah. it, it's the only way that she would know that she has that is to have inter to have experienced it in when she's kind of lands in the void. Um, yeah. and, and she, she doesn't seem quite as scared of Elioth as some of the Lokis are. Is any yeah. of the other Lokis, right? Yeah, I would, I would say so. And I, and I think like, because what she sees when she enchants Elioth is like what Elioth sees Right. So sort of in the same way that she like dug into the memories when she was enchanting, it's like, I think a version of that, like an ability to sort of like both like speak through that we saw in the, in the rocks cart, but also like tap into the memories, which we saw otherwise. Does that answer your question, John? I think so. It does set up almost as if you two were planning this, the final question of Marvel's planning, and that is how odd or shocked or surprised are we meant to be at the end when Sylvie is in fact able to successfully enchant the smoke the smoke monster? I think like odd is a a good way. I, I'm I'm not surprised by it, but the fact that it's a challenge and that she needs like the power up from the joining with Loki, like I think that tells us how tough this is. So I think we're meant to be odd. And she and she can't do it by herself. She can't do it by herself. She has to do it, as you say, with with Loki. But she also, but they need classic Loki to actually sacrifice himself in a kind of Iphigenian way, um, <laughs> in order to, in order to, you know, get the distraction for the smoke monster um, going yeah. sufficiently, so that they can sort of enchant him. I'm ascribing male gender to... I think we can do that. I think, yeah. we'll I, I think that's right. I think in the comics it actually does have a male gender. Okay. Your point that she can't do it on her own and also that they like need the time that classic Loki provides them and they almost don't do it. Again, it like speaks to how tough this is. But I think also like to go back to the point earlier... She's the only one who's not afraid of of this and is willing to take it on. The rest of the Lokis are just running and hiding. Until old Loki is like, you know what? I'm going to come back and make this self-sacrificing stand and help out yeah. Sylvie and Tom Loki. Which, like, maybe raises a question, maybe re-raises the question of what makes a Loki a Loki. But I think the different, a different version of that question that it raises is, like, how does engaging with other Loki variants like change and impact like the various Lokis we get? And they also oh. are all skeptical of each other because they know they're tricksters. And, yeah. and she asks him that, you know, can I trust you? And it's going to really count. <laughs> like, <laughs> back to Mobius and alligator Loki and the analysis there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it, 
is this really a Loki? Well, if if you're lying, then like you maybe maybe that makes you more of a Loki. But yeah, I think we've come to the Easter egg hunt. I can't wait. John has been killing the Easter egg hunt. I'm. I've been trying really hard to to trip him up. <laughs> so the way the Easter egg hunt goes is I offer three um, three things in the episode that are potentially Easter eggs, and John has to guess the one that's actually an Easter egg. Everybody ready? The first thing is the time cell that B-15 is in. The second is the bowling alley setting as an Easter egg. And the third is the frog in the jar that we see in the sort of like the pan up above ground. All right. This is a tough one. I actually don't have any clue whatsoever and maybe no basis to reason. I'm going to assume the frog in the jar carries with it some meaning or some reference. And so I'm going to limit myself to the to B-15's uh, time cell of incarceration in the bowling alley setting. And I could very easily see there having been some MCU or comics thing happening in a bowling alley where there was some disaster that led to it being transported to the void. So my guess is for the time cell would be 15. Okay. Lily, do you have a guess? Do you know the answer to this? Um, I think I do, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to defer to and go with John. <laughs> bad yeah, idea, bad plan. <laughs> Unfortunately, you are both wrong. <laughs> but your reasoning got you to the right answer. You just didn't say it. So the thing that actually is an Easter egg um, is the frog in the jar. So it's Throg, um, which is Thor as a frog, which is like a whole thing. I will say, I cheated did I do time. Easter egg backwards? I, no, I, I, I tried to do the wrong thing. <laughs> I cheated because it wasn't a thing in the MCU. It was a thing. It was a, a general Easter egg. Just because the MCU related ones were like too obvious, and you already guessed them before we started recording. <laughs> in my notes, it literally says. CGI hellscape full of uh, what I assume are Easter eggs. So <laughs> yeah. I was so like, I was ready. The helicopter is an Easter egg. The Avengers Tower is an Easter egg. The um, uh, the large sized yellow jacket mask is an Easter egg. Like there's so many Easter eggs in this episode that I was having a really hard time thinking of things that were not Easter eggs. <laughs> Um, but John did guess the before we started recording that the Thanos helicopter was an Easter egg. And that is indeed an Easter egg. And the thing that I had written down uh, to use in this before I had to, to revise To be it. fair, Thanos is like stamped on in big letters. <laughs> and I am familiar with my guy, Josh Brolin. So. Honestly, that's impressive. Like that's a, that's a level up there. It's inevitable. Right? <laughs> is this what he says? That is what he says, and I I, hate I, I know that gif and that sound drop, and that's maybe all I know <laughs> about Dennis. Oh my god, he's a very square job. Too. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's one way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get into gloss, Lily. You had a really, really helpful um, way to think about some of the things happening in this episode. So you want to talk to us about the tie that you introduced to John and I before we started recording? Um, well, one of the things that I guess I think I started to think about was reference to um, the Wizard of Oz. 
Um, and, and as I was watching it again to prepare for the episode, I was really struck by the way that the images were made to feel towards the end as classic Loki sort of creates this green version, um, of Asgard and, and that it's sparkly too. So if you go to the movie, the wizard of Oz, when they're approaching the Emerald city, I really thought that there was a, a conscious mapping of the greenness. Um, that was the distraction for, um, uh, Alioth, um, to sort of allow for Sylvie and Loki to, you know, level up their power. Uh, and, and I, I also was wondering and sort of mixing into this, that not only that green images of the Emerald city of a certain kind, and I know green is Loki's color also, but the man behind the curtain or the person behind the yeah. curtain. Um, and, and so we're getting to this sort of the place beyond the end of time as yeah. just as the, the folks were getting to the, to Oz and to see the wizard, um, which was supposed to be the destination that would help them get back to yeah. their own yeah. temporal plane. Um, and it turns out that the wizard is a person behind the curtain with a smoke machine and a big microphone. Um, and this is the film version, not Frank Baum's version per se, but I, I really was struck by it. And the opening to the castle as the smoke disappears again, Mm. felt very much to me like some of the images that you have in the wizard of Oz. Yeah, I love that. I think like I it wasn't the man behind the curtain is something that's been percolating for me for a couple of episodes, but like the the green and the imagery and the sparkliness, I think like you're really onto something there and I and and like even just the shape of the palace in Asgard feels very Oz and 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 that link feels so much more prominent when it has the green shine to it as opposed to like when you just see like the CGI Asgard in in one of the Thor movies um yeah yeah and I think like the other thing that it raises right like So Oz is the place that's going to help them or the wizard is going to help them. That's sort of like the, the role of magic, but then also the sort of like the all knowing and all powerful, right. That like, there's something like knowledge is linked up here. Um, and, and what we know and how we know it and what is real is controlled by some entity beyond like the world that we live in. Like, there feels like a lot of connections there. Yeah. And again, I sort of was really struck by it as I was rewatching. So if we're to read The Wizard of Oz as in part a critique of the Gilded Age and we're drawing these connections, what would the Loki possible allusions to The Wizard of Oz be said to be critiquing or offering a kind of vantage on or representation of? I don't have an answer to that, but capitalism that's i mean that's obviously the the first step because it's green right which was a a essential component of the the emerald city in the original wizard of oz but i also wonder about you know this question of power 
Um, and, and, you know, who has the power because the TVA has power, but it's fake and it's, it's, you know, generated in a, in a way that people are kind of still trying to work out. So where did that power come from? Um, and you know, how did the wizard get his power in the wizard of Oz? Um, and where did that come from? And you also then also have these, these components that are threatening, um, in the witches and the thing that always scared me when I was younger, those monkeys, the flying um, monkeys. Wow. I'm still afraid of them. Yeah. I hated that part. Um, and, and so I think you see, you know, you see narrative echoes back and forth yeah. throughout sort of this idea of Loki with regard to, um, where the threats are coming from, who's responsible for the threats, um, what should make you traumatized or not. Um, yeah. And I would, I would also just to like, come back to the, the question of like, what, what does the parallel like then ask us to think about? Like temporality is not really in play in the same way in the wizard of Oz, right? That that's the thing that has that, that the, the wizard or the TVA or like, whatever is beyond the end of time has control over. Right. So like that the wizard is the thing that like apparently has the power and control, but that that's actually a farce and that the TVA is also a farce. So I'm, I'm trying to think about like if the sort of critique of the Gilded Age transposing that into, into Loki and thinking about like power over time and temporality like what does that invite critique over i'm i'm not sure but i think that's that's where the answer comes i mean i would i i take it but i also think that the original baum's original wizard of oz was also a critique of the the defanged presidency right that had been the result of the tenure and office act and Andrew Johnson's impeachment. And, and so you have, you know, and I, whenever I teach the presidency, I always ask my students, can you please name a president from Lincoln to Teddy Roosevelt and what they did? <laughs> and it's really interesting because the students all realize that, Oh, ha, Hmm. Grant. Yes. But what did Grant do? Don't know. Um, and so you have this period of time when the American presidency that we think of as so, as so, so powerful, um, was so neutered. Um, and that, that's, that's another image of what the wizard is, is this sort of weakness behind a big screen. Um, and so what is the power that they're going to find or who are they going to find with what kind of power um, beyond the end of time? Yeah. And I mean, I think like those are questions that we'll have to take up a little bit more next time when we, I guess, end up beyond the end of time. I'm, it's question mark for the show, but not question mark for me. so there are however a lot of question marks swirling around and Lily you mentioned this already about Miss Minutes how much she if we're going to go with she knows or doesn't know how much autonomy she has over what she's disclosing and not disclosing to Sylvie to Renslayer who she acts in 
cahoots with or service mm-hmm. of or leading or being led by? These are all open questions that are newly opened in this episode. Earlier on, Loki, when she's like teaching Loki, this is, I think in episode two, he's like, are you a cartoon or real like what are you and she like sort of giggles and then moves on but I think like that's where those questions are like who is Miss Minutes what's going on here and also like I will just say that Tara Strong is like one of the most famous like voice actors who voices Miss Minutes and like to bring in someone with that much like notoriety in this kind of role to me suggests that like something more is happening here Well, she has the information, right? So in that regard, it's very interestingly like the NSA or the CIA that she has all these files that she has to dig into in order to find things. Um, But she also knows when she can sort of dawdle for a purpose. I was just going to say like a little like Jim Scott feet dragging, like for a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, I was, I was really paying attention to her eyes in this episode because she sort of looks away when things are a little bit sketchy, um, or she's doing something a little sketchy. So I don't know. And I'm still intrigued. It's a really fascinating character to deploy as a nefarious operator within the structure of the TVA, given that we learned in the preceding episode that the timekeepers were mindless androids, right? Or the timekeepers that were presented to the rest of the TVA were mindless androids. And given that Renslayer, Sylvie, Loki, Mobius are all very much wondering about, well, who actually created the TVA, determined what the sacred timeline was, all of these sorts of big kind of concrete questions about the plot and about the structure of the political and temporal system. The fact that Miss Minis get, gets this increasing prominence and does so with the, with the eyes darting around to avoid directly answering questions and to obstruct and to stall and to filibuster is, is particularly notable that she takes on this more prominent agential role in obfuscating everything. Or like potentially agential, right? Like there, there is like, there's some agency, but it's still like unclear, like if something else is controlling her, if she is acting of her own will, does she have a will to, to act on? We were introduced to her as a cartoon. Yeah. And now she's like something beyond that. Well, and she is a cartoon. So that's, you know, you, you're like looking at a cartoon on live action. So you're always usually like, well, that's a goofy thing, right? Yeah. That's the usual response to a cartoon in the live action is that it's, it's sort of a wink um, and yeah. a nudge and a, and, and she's sort of occupied that with her kind of little Southern drawl. Um, and, and, and yet she seems, as you say, to have more agentic power, but we're not sure who or why, And she's still a cartoon. And as the cartoon who can kind of pop up anywhere, right, she travels across space and time in a different way than live action human characters can or do or allocators. 
Yes. Or alligators, most importantly. (laughs) The question of how important she is, I think, is like an open question for us. But at least in this episode, I think it seems like maybe she's more important than we thought she was. Right? Like that that's part of the, a little bit of the whiplash of the cartoon of it all. She's got very much like um, stranded at the drive-in it, grease like jumping hot dogs vibes to me like that's her aesthetic and yet she is like the keeper of or at least has access to all this information um so there's like there's something there's something sinister there i think that's the the piece that i want to to hit on that is amplified by the like the disconnect between her sort of like southern drawl friendly i'm here to help you I have access to the files and I'm calling the cops on you vibes. So I think like related to these questions about Miss Minutes is also uh, the question about questions we raised last time. And then something maybe we want to talk a little bit more here about just like the Renslayer character development. John, this was something that, that you were thinking about a little bit. So do you want to clue us into where you're thinking on Renslayer? Yeah, I think that the show is not quite sure about Renslayer's motivations, and thus we as viewers are left to do a lot of interpretive work about her motivations, but not in an engaging, generative way, but in a way that I think confuses a character that the creators are confused about. And I think that that particularly comes through in her interactions with Sylvie in this episode, Because I think that we're, of course, meant to ask how genuine is she versus how much is she being blackmailed or held hostage by Sylvie. There's this switch that comes when the timekeepers come in or the Minutemen come in. I forget the terminology here at this point. Uh, The Minutemen, excuse me. Um, And the Hunters. And then she seems to be fully against Sylvie, but was she meant to be, like, somewhat sympathetic to Sylvie? And I think this is really muddled, not as a fault of like Gugu and Bathara, who's a very good actor, but yeah. as a fault of the people writing her character. And she's also sort of become the only one who's really in charge of the TVA. She's like our like in or access to the like the those in charge beyond Miss Minutes, who also like question mark is she in charge? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I like. John, I just echo your, the sort of like, like confusion that the show seems to have about, about Renslayer, like how much she knows, how much she doesn't know. It seemed like in the last episode, she was like sort of playing coy with a lot of things. And in this episode, it's just like, it's more confusing and not confusing in a like, oh, it's a puzzle box kind of way. Confusing in a like, uh, do you have an answer, showrunners and writers and Kevin Feige? And if you do, do you also have an answer to the question of how much Renslayer is willing to disclose to Sylvie in that moment or these moments in which they're interacting in last episode and this episode? In, in a certain sense, Renslayer is also acting a little bit like a Loki because she's, you know, she's sort of tilting one way and tilting the other way. And she's, uh, you don't know which, if you can trust her or not. Um, and if she were just, you know, if she were just bad, like a baddie, then, mm-hmm. then we were like, okay, she's a baddie. Um, right. but she is and isn't. And, and I think you're right that the, the writers aren't giving us 
enough information to go, at least in this episode, uh, to sort out, like, should we be sympathetic to her? Yes. Yeah. That's And I think, Lily, that's ultimately the question that I'm asking myself is like in kind of conventional storytelling structures, am I meant to sympathize with this character? And like, I actually would like an an invitation to answer that question in in a clearer way. These are, I hope that some of these questions get worked out in season two, actually. Like, I think that the Renslayer of it all, like a generous way to read some of the questions we're asking is that these are places where like a more complex character could be developed. I suspect that we're not going to get like Renslayer backstory. Um, just because I think that at least I, I don't think that that's, that that's where season two is going to go, but maybe, maybe it will. Who knows? <laughs> I will say there's one kind of plot and narrative function that I do think the show does well with her. Mm-hmm. And that is the way that it is cross-cutting between the, the Loki variants explaining the void to Loki and Renslayer explaining the void to Sylvie back at the TVA. Yeah. And so we get to see what is the official narrative of the void from Renslayer or the tilted official narrative that Renslayer is using with whatever her motivations are in that scene officially to explain to Sylvie and then the experience of the void as narrated by or presented by from the standpoint of those variant Lokis we get who have been living there for however long that time could be measured at the end of time in the void. Yeah, and I think that that, I agree with you, I think that's effective. And, like, I think Renslayer is at her most effective when it is clear how we should be relating to her. And in that moment, like, we are skeptical of what she's, we're sort of like with Sylvie, right? Like, we're skeptical of what she's saying, but we're threatening her and and we're hoping that she's giving us at least the, the, like, the straight version of the story, right? It's like in these other moments where we don't know how much she knows or what she knows that it becomes like a a bit more murky and a bit less effective. I agree. I, I would like, I would like to know how I'm supposed to feel about her. A set of characters who I think we do know how we are supposed (laughs) to feel about them. Segway master over here um, is president Loki's mob, his mob of Mary Loki's. Um, John, you have some feelings on the aesthetics of this mob? Yeah, I would like for all of those Loki variants to account for their whereabouts on January 6th, 2021, <laughs> because I feel very confident that there's some uh, extreme overlap between the costuming of the Loki, President Loki's mob and the fascist cosplayers of, the, of January 6th. So, so I have the I have a picture of the mob staring into uh into like the top of what I'm just gonna call the hatch uh to go with the like lost vibes here. But there is someone who has like motorcycle handlebars as his version of horns, right? Because Loki has the horns. There's someone who has like straight up horn like horns like we saw in multiple like People like, on January 6th. The so-called QAnon shaman, which obviously is a fucked up term, uh, yes. is literally there with Loki. It feels yes. like. <laughs> I was say that. Yeah, I mean, I. 
we do need to call these people to account. <laughs> like the FBI they is probably on it. <laughs> <laughs> our, our own, the T, a TVA of our own. Um. <laughs> if you will. Oh God. I feel sad about this parallel. And I'm like, is this just where people were getting their costume ideas? for the rally like that just for their like this is this is coup chic like that makes me sad it's probably this is probably you know uh coup 101 costumes (laughs) (laughs) like slide slide one loki mob (laughs) oh god oh my god well like listen their aesthetic matches how i feel about them which is like these people are terrors so whether they be on January 6th or in Loki episode five. (laughs) (laughs) I think we are ready to shift into minor character of the week. Obviously. As our, you know, honored guest, I want to throw it to you. Who is your minor character of the week this week? It has to be, and it inevitably is alligator Loki. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there, there's no other way around it. And, and in terms of actually the sort of beats of this episode, um, Alligator Loki's sort of humor um, and <laughs> and how people respond to Alligator Loki all the way along is absolutely so well done in terms yeah. of a little comic relief, a little comic relief. I, I thought that the beats of that were fabulous. Yeah, Alligator Loki also would be my minor character of the week, so I'd like to affirm Lily's call here in the sense that Alligator Loki, as I may have already mentioned, like most embodies the chaos energy that or mischief energy of that we were supposed to describe to a Loki. And great vibes to just hang out in that kiddie pool with the wine drip. Like, you know, if only we could all, you know, create (laughs) such a setup, whether in an underground bowling alley hatch (laughs) layer or not. Listen, I too love Alligator Loki. I I I really love the part where like classic Loki is like we're all he's overly sensitive. We all are. But like I just I love that so much. Um I also love Alligator Loki because it gives me like, ooh, are we gonna get the pet avengers? And is Alligator Loki gonna be one of the pet avengers? And maybe Throg will also be in there? Like Perhaps not canonically, but we like we all everyone loves an alligator Loki. Um, fun fact: I had an alligator plush toy that was like the toy that I slept with growing up. Um, so so I, you like, were until alligator Loki early. Yeah. <laughs> now, was that plush toy named after? somebody in the fast and the furious yes it was but like should it also be named after alligator loki now yeah also that i will just say though that i have an honorable mention for minor character of the week another loki variant which is kid loki i just i love kid loki's vibes he like takes no shit (laughs) when loki's like what was your nexus event stone cold he's like i killed thor and like that's it and all of these like scarier looking people are just like bowing down to him. Like I love those vibes. Like I love it. Kid Loki, like all the way. And also is another way to function as a uh, to underscore what the TVA does. They pruned 
kid Loki as well, right? They're, you know, we already knew that, but this further brings home that they're totally fine with taking and stealing children from their Absolutely. existences. And Which also brought us back to the beginning of the Trump administration again. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Last episode, we compared the TVA to the Bush administration. So I feel like the Trump administration link is also like very prominent there. But I think, uh, Danielle, building on the, the potential pet Avengers, we also would have Groot, right? Oh, of course. Because Groot's Groot. not a pet, but a, a plant. Yeah, but Groot, also potentially Rocket. I would just like to speak a word on behalf of the like apocalypse peacocks in this episode as part <laughs> their of weird this. Heads. Yes, as part of this thing you are constructing. Things that needed to be pruned that should be their own Avengers team. Listen, will it be a cartoon? Will it be live action? Will it be one of those weird, like, Disney, we're pretending this is live action, but it's all CGI? Like, you know, give us a, like, John Favreau, give us a Lion King live action in heavy quotation marks that's just, like, the peacocks, alligator, Loki, and Throg running around the void. I would watch it. Kevin Feige, there's your next million dollar idea. (laughs) (laughs) Danielle has very reasonable uh, commissions. All right. So we have a very special version of politics in the MCU this week because one of the many reasons that we asked Lily to join us for a discussion about Loki is not only all of the brilliant insights she has already brought to the show so far, not only because she is herself a well-renowned podcaster, but also because she is one of the editors, along with Nicholas Carnes, of the forthcoming book, The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which will be out later this year, or early 2023, from the University Press of Kansas. So, Lily, maybe before we get into the book itself, you can tell us how it came to be and kind of some of the process that led to its creation and assembling? Uh, well, it came to be out of a Twitter conversation, right. which is the the well. sort of strangest way that you can generate <laughs> a book, but there you go. Um, and it was a discussion about the scene um, of all the women um, in Endgame as they sort of come to, to rescue or be strong together or whatever it is. Um, you know, Disney... MCU is trying to trying to definitely you know show that they they are including women um, in in their work at that point. But the other part of the Twitter conversation was the fact that um, Endgame and um, Infinity War generated so much money, so many ticket sales in such a short amount of time, and then and continues to be the number one um, sort of product uh, mm-hmm. in terms of cinematic productions um, and how much, you know, they, they passed a billion dollars in Endgame within a week or so. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's worldwide um, openings, obviously, before COVID and so forth. Um, and so this was a conversation that a number of people were involved in on Twitter. And uh, I did not know Nick Carnes. Um, and we sort of connected cause he does, he is a MCU enthusiast and yeah. I work on popular culture. Um, and we said, let's do something. Um, and all these people who were in inside the Twitter conversation, um, we sort of said, Hey, you want to do something? And, you know, one thing led to another, we met at an APSA American political science association meeting and, 
We tried to have a sort of bunch of people present their sort of first drafts of chapters at the following year's um, Midwest Political Science Association, but COVID happened. Uh, So we took it on Zoom. Um, And we have a book that I think has 26 chapters um, and is spectacular. It's fascinating. It's been a delight to work on. All of our authors, Danielle included, um, have been amazing and brilliant. Um, And also people were working on this during the pandemic. So there was a ready excuse to watch, sit down and watch (laughs) a whole bunch of TV shows and movies and subscribe to Disney Plus. Um, and, and everybody, every time they were turning in work, always said this was really a delightful thing to do and work <laughs> on. Um, and so that's how the book came about. Uh, and we have, it, it, it leads heavy into political theory. But it is certainly written as all for, great books should. As all great books should. Um, but it it is certainly written. We tried really hard to make sure it was written to be accessible to all, um, particularly people who have interests in the MCU in general. Um, and I think there's there's a, a little bit of reference to Loki in it, but it was sort of coming to production. Um, of the book as Loki was airing so that there's, there's reference here or there, but not a lot. Um, it's really sort of phases one, two, and three of the MCU that it, it concentrates on. Um, and it's all, you know, it includes lots of different approaches, thinking about the MCU television episodes from the Netflix series, um, as well as some of the newer um, Disney Plus ones, as well mm-hmm. as obviously the whole canon of films. Um, so everything from Jessica Jones to Captain America um, and, you know, Aristotle. Um, <laughs> uh, Not and, in my chapter. Don't look at me. <laughs> Not in your chapter. Um, and Homer and so on. So in, it has quantitative analysis, uh, has qualitative analysis, has images and it will hopefully be out in November. That's wonderful. And I must say that 26 chapters producing this during COVID, editing this during COVID, also like working with formatting images and, uh, and data and the images that come out of the data. Um, what a monumental editing task for you and for you oh and, my God. and Nick Carnes. Let me I just say that. that Nick Carnes is a brilliant scholar, but he's also amazing on that side of production. <laughs> so, I mean, he's, he is very brilliant and he's really good at all that stuff. <laughs> so maybe uh, request another monumental task. As you mentioned some of this in, in your, like, I appreciate how thorough that kind of overview of the book was the lay. So you talked a little about the political economy question that plays into perhaps the the volume, a little bit about the way that Marvel or Disney are perhaps changing the way they're representing gender in the universe or universes they are constructing. What are some of the other kind of core thematics or big questions that maybe you're organizing the book through? Yeah, and and so there there are three sections of the book, and then and then two afterwards, because um, one wasn't enough. Um, <laughs> and, and so the the themes are essentially, you know, how do we think about um, how how do we think about how do we see power 
um, and and government institutions in and this is always a question with regard to superheroes and and government institutions because they are inevitably vigilantes um, because mm-hmm. they're outside of the power structure um, and so there's a there's a big section that is looking specifically at that we have a number of chapters that do that in different ways civil military relations um, you know whether the U.S. government is portrayed pow- positively or negatively um, and you know, who has power, Captain America or Iron Man or um, Captain Marvel, um, and how is it demonstrated? We have a a really um, rich section that is essentially looking at identity. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's it's not just women. We have a chapter on the the sort of Marvel closet. Um, We have Danielle's chapter on the sort of issue of family and understanding of family and connections. Um, and we have a lot of discussion of gender, masculinity, um, women, specifically um, the lack thereof and how they've been integrated. Um, I, I have a chapter that's uh, understanding sort of how Marvel films engage this idea of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we have, we have a number of those kinds of chapters. We also have chapters that, um, again, sort of look at the question of, in that context, the question of race. Um, how, how, how do we understand race in a superhero context? How do we understand it in the MCU? Um, but we also have, you know, sort of this question of, um, democratic structures mm-hmm. um, and the idea of democracy woven into the MCU in different ways. But we we do want to pay attention and we do pay attention to the fact that this is a, um, a money-making <laughs> uh, production um, and entity. And how does that also shape the narratives that we see in all of these different venues. Yeah. Um, and so, so there, you know, there are these thematic questions and, and the constancy of, you know, when you have something that is a threaded narrative in so many different properties that are created, you know, to make money, mm-hmm. um, yeah. or profit. Um, and so that gets into this question of aesthetics, um, and value, uh, and, and sort of also, uh, what you can ask of those who are participating in it. Cause one of the afterwards specifically focuses on, you know, the sort of contracts that Marvel actors and actresses have to sign and, and be connected to, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, there's distinct requirements, um, of availability and, um, presentation of self and so forth. Um, and we also have, you know, a, a really fascinating afterward that sort of links Aristotle's understanding of storytelling and rhetoric to what the MCU is doing and questions of tragedy. <laughs> Shockingly, that's not written by our one, one and only Danielle I didn't Hanley. Know that. You didn't know that. I know. <laughs> but Danielle, maybe you can tell our listeners about <laughs> about your chapter in the volume. Yeah. Well, first, I just want to say that it was like such a lovely experience to be like invited to be part of this, and and Lily is is the reason why I was able to be part of it. A cup, a few different things are are circulating in my brain. Like to your point about. 
about Nick being a wonderful editor, just like the, the directions that you both gave us in terms of like what needs to be done, when we need to do it by, how to do it, and if we can't do it, what to do. It was like, it's, it was like a dream of working on a project, just like getting clear expectations all the time. So I, like, I don't think that happens all the time. I feel very spoiled. Um, I think the other thing is I was actually a colleague of mine at Clark, Aura, is also in the volume. She is. And we connected, like, when I first got here over the fact that we were both mm-hmm. in the volume. Mm-hmm. So I think something really nice that the that the book does, which I think maps onto the way you described it, Lily, is, like, it moves in and out of, like, specific pieces of the MCU connections between different pieces, but then also the relationship that the MCU and its audience has and like all of the different ways in which that relationship like develops and also like has implications. And like the project itself is also doing that for the people who are involved, which I think is very cool. My specific chapter is on family assemblages um, and it mostly focuses on the, like the, the films in the MCU, but a little bit later and specifically on like the Avengers franchise and a little bit on the Captain America, like piece of it. But later I, on the request of Lily and Nick added, added a little bit about Hawkeye. So sort of bringing in some of the more, the more recent stuff. And I would, I would say, and I suspect this, this matches your experience, like to produce something that is like a commentary on and, and theorizing about a thing that is still evolving, like felt like a really big challenge. Every time I watched one of these shows, I was like, Oh no, like this is my whole argument is here. We've literally <laughs> been throwing around my chapter is on family assemblages. We've been throwing around the term assemblage sort of like as a joke, but also because like it is an applicable idea. Yeah. And so I think like one of the biggest challenges for me was to like, de-theory brain the things that I was thinking about and like to try to think about how does the stuff that we are maybe like used to talking about as political theorists, the vocabulary that we're used to talking about it with, how does that actually act as a barrier to inviting others into that conversation? I think that was like a really big part of my experience. And I think it's something that I try to carry forward. Not necessarily, I'm not necessarily like trying to not use the word assemblage as much or heterogeneity, which was another word that like, <laughs> like, you don't need to use that word. You can use a different word that's not as, like, as snooty. <laughs> like, my word, not your um, <laughs> But, like, in thinking about, like, moving my work, moving from, like, pitching my work or sending my work to, like, very specific political theory or feminist theory journals to more generalist journals to thinking about the book itself and, like, what what is the core of the idea? Do I need the, like, adornment of, like, vocab from Deleuze and Guattari? Or can I actually just say what the idea is? And that has actually been a really freeing thing after an experience in grad school that made me feel like I needed to always be like piling on those hyper-specific terms. I mean, no one on, no one on this call would ever get a like Deleuze tattoo, right? 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 (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Lily. John has a Foucault tattoo and a Deleuze tattoo. (laughs) I Got just it. feel like that needs to be said. I Not like of their faces. I didn't think so. 
that that oh, that would be a lot. Um, <laughs> but I, what I was going to say, Danielle, is that I, you know, I have a, a deep well now of research on popular culture and it is always sort of feels like it's slipping through your fingers because it's ongoing or it's ending or it's already you know much past us and and so sort of writing about it particularly in an academic publication cycle which is very slow um is is a sort of weird experience as well um, but the MCU, because it is ongoing, that we we thought that, you know, a book that is on the, the first three phases essentially would be a nice foundational capacity for people who are interested in reading yeah. about popular culture and politics and people who are into the MCU. It'll always be interesting. <laughs> Well, and I think Aura and I are going to try to, Aura teaches a class here on like comic books. And I think we're going to try to co-teach something in the future on like the MCU and politics. Like that's sort of our, we've been, it's like been germinating a little bit. Cool. I have a book recommendation for that course, (laughs) (laughs) All right. We are, we have taken a lot of Lily's time. So we want to make sure we're respectful of that. Um, But before we move on to the final segment of the Not Quite Great Books show, uh, are there any things, either Danielle from your chapter or themes, Lily, from the book as a whole, that you want to kind of briefly bring up in the context of this particular episode of Loki? Well, one of the things that, you know, I'm struck by the entire the entire series of Loki is, you know, is wrangling with time and, and, um, what does it mean? Um, and a lot of the films don't wrangle with that particularly, although, you know, Endgame is this kind of return to a different time and you can't mess it up too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there is a little bit of time looping, but not, as much obviously as as is the basis for Loki and yeah. i think that i think that Loki as a MCU character is really interesting because he does get to pop in and out of the properties yeah. uh because of this connection to time um, yeah. and so I, I think in general not necessarily episode 5 per se uh, but Loki, the series, and and what its narrative sort of trajectory is, I think does does help us to think about like the MCU properties in general and who gets to appear in them, and and then who doesn't. I mean, and to your point, Lily, that this one of the things that's both really promising and cool, but also a challenge about this project is the ongoingness of the MCU itself. Like my understanding is that now that the MCU is in the multiverse, right? There's a way in which it can also work back on itself too, which kind of further complicates some of those things. Yeah. And that was a little bit of what I wrote about in my, in my chapter, because it is kind of this kind of constant reference back into its narrative self, um, which yeah. sort of develops its own nostalgia for itself um, and for aspects of itself. Yeah, and then nostalgia is like this sort of like self-reinforcing engine that is driving so much of this, which like I think we're seeing in these newer properties too, right? Like in the new Spider-Man movie, you get these other two Spider-Men who are from older versions. In um, in Doctor Strange, there's a similar like the the multiverse. You can spoil Doctor Strange. It's okay. 
it's fine. Um, <laughs> just in general, like the the concept of the multiverse, which is this like dominant thing at the moment in Phase Four, like there's a lot of work that nostalgia is doing both in terms of generating interest in these things that are then sort of opening to something new, but also the like pulling people, pulling people back in, in particular ways. Yeah. Which has its own political economic uh, imperative as well. Right. All right. There you go. Should we jump to the last segment of the, of the show? Yeah. All Let's- right. Let's dive into the cave. Um, and Lily, you're taking a, who are you taking into the cave with us? Um, well, I'm actually going into the cave. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. just going to go into, you know, Socrates's discussion of the cave because that's really what I kept thinking about the whole time I was watching all of Loki um, was, you know, what is real? the the sacred timeline um what is a projection what is a shadow of a projection mm-hmm. um and and in and part of what we get in episode 5 is really wrestling with that if we're at the end of time the end of time is on the sacred timeline i think yeah <laughs> Um, I, I think I'm not totally sure of that. Uh, but again, like how do they distinguish, how do any of them distinguish who is real Loki? How, you know, who is real Loki? Um, and, and then again, we see the dark cloud, right. And what is revealed to us, but light and sun. Um, yeah. and, and so a lot of it, like in in very obvious ways, this is not a stunning analysis in any <laughs> in any form. Is very much Platonic cave. Well, even the I mean, to your that's a, an excellent interpretation, Lily, and I appreciate about it. In part because it takes us back to the way we started this conversation, which is what makes a Loki a Loki. Like the Platonic exactly. way to ask that question is, what is the form of a Loki, and then what are all these copies of the form of the Loki partaking in that makes them copies of the form. Yeah. They're all mimetic, right? Like it's all yes. mimesis. It's mimesis mm-hmm. all the way down. Mm-hmm. And like that I think is something important that this show, like that like that this show is is asking us to think about is like how do we and Lily, to your point, like how do we know what's the copy? And like what's the copy for us versus like what's the copy for for someone who is watching a version of this show through President Loki or someone who's right, like who gets to be a copy and ultimately like 2012 Loki is also a copy, right? Because he's getting pruned from the timeline. Right. So. And who is deciding which kinds of mimesis are representable or communicable and one who is guarding literally, right? Watch, uh, yeah. watch, watch, which of those are transmissible. Who gets to be the philosopher. And like, I, it seems like whoever's at, the end of time where history is still being where the timeline still being written rather like that's the philosopher's role question mark. Well, and also where the power is. Absolutely. But all the decisions about what's the sacred timeline, right. Is obviously the philosopher, but we don't know who the philosopher is. Um, and, and so, you know, and is Sylvie, is Sylvie a philosopher? 
because she has a lot of knowledge and she's seen through a lot of the sort of shadows um, and creations. And she's been through so many different timelines that she has this understanding that the other Lokis don't really have. Right. She's the trickster survivor version of the one who can go in and out of the cave at will. Yeah. Yeah. Or is she a sophist? <laughs> I just wanted to bring us back to the to, to the Republic a little bit. That's fine. <laughs> oh my god! I listen. I love a I love a version of the cave where we're just like hanging with Plato, hanging with Socrates, because I think it's the purest form of this. And I agree with you that like the cave is all over this. It's all over Loki. And I think there are ways in which, like, to go back to some of the discussion you raised about the politics in the Marvel Cinematic Universe volume is, like, it's all over the MCU, right? Like, it's all over all of it. This question of truth, of understanding, of knowledge, and, like, control is a question that's pervasive in the MCU, but takes a very particular and, I think, interesting form here. One of the things, I think it's Renslayer, it's either Renslayer or Sylvie says in their conversation early in the episode is this question of stability versus truth. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, it's either one thing or the other. Apparently you can't have both. <laughs> it's really yeah. interesting for political theorists. Um, <laughs> we love it. And, and, and just one last, you know, ringing the bell. Of course I can't go on without my, my dear Shakespeare time is out of joint. Time is out of joint. Time is out of joint. And that takes us, of course, to Hamlet, who was dealing with a lot of the same issues of like, what is the truth? Um, and what do I understand my reality to be? And importantly, daddy issues. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Which are all connected in a nice bow here in the cave. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for bringing Plato into the cave, for bringing Socrates into the cave, for bringing us back to the cave in the cave. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, it feels right. This feels like a great place to end. Thank you so much for, for joining us on this episode. Oh, it's been a it's delight. Been- thank you for inviting me. It's been, oh, it's been yeah, so delightful to have you. So we're, we appreciate it so much. Of course. We want to thank not only Lily, but we want to thank producer Amy as well. Um, next up in the feed, we've got the American season two, episode five, the deal will drop on Thursday. And then next Tuesday, join us for the finale of season one of Loki for all time, always. Um, and thank you so much for joining us on not quite great books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Bless FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. <laughs>